We're officially recording. Yeah. So, Andos, you want to bring us in? I'm ready. More than happy to. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the wrap number four. We have the big three, the first triumvirate, back at the desk. Alexander, how are you? You know, I'm, I'm actually feeling really good today. Um, I've got some new dope threads on we'll talk about in a minute, but I'll say I am feeling pretty fly for a white guy at the minute. You already know how it is. I know how it is. Do you see? I'm feeling good, just taking in the energy of the room. Andy's got his first basketball win in a long time, so we're all <laughs> hyped. We're all hyped. We're all now, hyped. You may be wondering if you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, why are the boys looking so fresh to death today? It's a good question. Well, the reason is because Kingdom Clothing has hooked us up with some fresh teas. Shout out to Kingdom Clothing. They're nice. There's not too much going on. They have a bit of length in the t-shirt, which I like these days. Um, they're simple. They feel nice. You can check them out on Facebook or Instagram at KNGDM Clothing on Facebook and KNGDM Clothing underscore on Instagram. Shout out to those boys. Thanks for hooking us up. These are, can I tell you, it's a great fit. It's a nice length. Sleeves are, I'm not a big fan of short, tight sleeves. Um, the fit's great, it's kind of minimal. I'm a big fan. It's, it's I'm a, a big fan. It's sophisticated. It's sophisticated. Like, you can wear this to kind of a, a casual thing, you can wear this going out. You can also wear it mm. to kind of a 21st type well, of thing, if we you're did, into that. We did actually agree to do it before we saw the tees, and we were very happily surprised when the tees came, looking this good. Well, Dougal agreed. Um, we're probably a little bit more fashion conscious than Dougal is, as you would say. I would definitely. I mean, I do look good in anything. Whatever. Whatever. And us. Um, Jumping to conclusions this Jumping week. Two conclusions this week. Um, if you've been a long time watcher of the RAV, you'll know that every time we've done this, I've been stitched up. So this time, <laughs> I've gone for somewhat more of a minimal conclusion. <laughs> the theme of that, the day. In that watches have no practical use anymore. They're just merely an accessory. Okay. Merely an accessory. Interesting. An mm. accessory. Mm. Mine is also fashion related. <laughs> what a surprise. Which is graphic tees have no place. No place. How would you def- can you define graphic tees quickly? Graphic tees with big pictures on them. You know the ones with all the bright colours. Um, particularly the ones you buy from like G Star Raw, like any t shirt you find like in G Star Raw. Yeah, like Ed Hardy. Um, never appropriate. No one likes it. Um, I don't know who I don't know who buys it or what they buy it for, but not okay. appropriate. Dougal being fashion conscious, that's the first. But uh, Alex, what's yours? And is that coming from the guy in footy shorts right now? I mean, it could be. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to do mine. Mine is um, everyone should attend church once a year, at least. Ooh! Wow! Wow! Everyone. Every, Everyone. Every single person. Every single person. As atheists. In a, as in a, a Christian. Especially atheists. <laughs> as in a, a Christian church? Or uh, yeah, I would say Christian church. Can you go church. to the mosque? I would say some form of church. I'm going to leave it leave it there. Um, you'll have to find out more later if you want. I think we might I think we find might out have a winner. Later. Okay. All right. I'm happy with that. should go to church once a year. That's the conclusion I think we'll yeah. see for the end. Yeah. Okay, so what's what's on today, Andy? First up, we have Alexander with an introduction to the Cardinal Pell story. And analysis, hopefully. Now, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it's not just dribble. 
e.g. <laughs> Russia Gate, Alex, but uh <laughs> <laughs> and he's playing hardball. <laughs> afterwards, afterwards, Dougal's gonna. Uh, <laughs> If I, if I remember correctly, when I asked Andos what he thought of that segment, he goes, yeah, I thought you guys covered it pretty well. I thought you guys did a pretty good job. I mean, it was comprehensive, but taking that amount of time, you'd bloody hope so. <laughs> well, moving swiftly on. And he's pulling no punches today. Dougal, Dougal... <laughs> We'll be elaborating on the Tommy Robinson controversy, which will lead beautifully into our beta males of the week, which will be followed by um, our little bit of analysis on the NRL's new behaviour policy. And then we'll bring it back to Alex's uh, conclusion. That was Wow. Wow, Andos. It's amazing what one basketball win will do for your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the BDE is Alex, off the charts today. Got liquid coming from all orifices at this point. Mate, I'm just in it's a total an absolute mess. <laughs> my, my body has rejected <laughs> Andy's claim. To the most extent. Okay, well, this is a serious story, so we should probably calm down a little bit. Together. Oh, Alrighty. All right. Give yourself a second. So, to give a bit of introduction to the case before we jump into the analysis, as almost anyone who's been uh, close to any kind of media, whether that's TV, print, radio, iPhone, the works would know that uh, Cardinal George Pell, formerly the third highest ranking Catholic official in the world, was convicted on five charges uh, earlier this week. So he was uh, convicted after the initial act was committed somewhere between kind of 20 to 25 years ago. And Basically, it was all against minors. So this is obviously uh, not the first time that an allegation has been made against the Catholic Church regarding sexual abuse and minors. So he was convicted of sexually penetrating a child under the age of 16, as well as four charges of an indecent act with a child under the age of 16. The offences occurred early in December 1996 and early 1997 in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, months after Pell was inaugurated as Archbishop of Melbourne. So this, uh, he was actually convicted in December, but because of the gag order issued by the court because of a subsequent case, the media weren't allowed to report on it. So it was only this week that he was allowed, that the media was allowed to report on it. So... There has been, obviously, an enormous amount of media hype surrounding this. This, uh, A lot of people are pointing more broadly to the Catholic Church as one that has massive systemic and structural issues surrounding child abuse. I would conclude that that would be accurate. Now, I'm happy to provide some analysis on the case itself, um, but probably I'd get your headline reaction, Dukes. Mm-hmm. And Andy, to um, the case. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk a bit about the case. Let's hear a bit about it too um, before we make any conclusions on Pell. Yeah. But I would say uh, we should hold uh, the Catholic Church 
institutionally accountable. Uh, we should have we should understand that Catholic Church uh, for the last 20, 30 years um, has had <coughs> um, enough cases of uh, child sexual abuse um, to put it in the category of not just an off uh, case, not just one bad priest. It's happened enough times where it's okay, there's actually some type of problem here. Yep. Um, <clears throat> in the same way, I would say that there are some uh, problems with Islam and different sects of Islam. Uh, there's obviously a problem uh, with the Catholic Church. Um, it's, you know, might not be a problem about the Bible, um, but it's definitely about a problem with the big institution. And it's not only even about the acts themselves, it's about the cover-ups uh, that make it so uh, so bad. Essentially, we have priests covering up for other priests. One priest will do something in one town in a church, then get moved to a different town, to a different town, and it's a racket um, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, so the Australian people are kind of sick of it. Uh, now, whether that's a confirmation bias that would then play into the Pell case, whether it would uh, influence the jury to be more inclined to uh, convict Pell of being guilty without taking into full account the situation, the situational details is a different thing, but the Catholic Church definitely has a lot to answer for, particularly since it is one of the most powerful institutions in the world. Yep. Arguably part of the deep state. Arguably. Yeah, the, the power structures that are just so prevalent within the church need to be held accountable. And um, what, with whatever happens with Pell, um, I think there needs to be some serious reform, um, not only like from the outside and like media backlash, mm-hmm. but also internally. Um, it's obviously not now, all bad. Pell, Pell did start... Um, uh, he started some type of thing in the Catholic Church looking into child abuse, right? Yeah. Are you going to have that? Do you, do you know about that? Uh, I have read it. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. Well, church, Well, Pell has been recorded as one of the people in the Catholic Church yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to crack down on child sexual abuse. Sure. But why Pell, don't you tell us about the case? Well, Pell has also admitted uh, to being as well uh, part of the cover-ups in yeah. many respects. Uh, I want to caveat everything that I'm about to say and uh, with the fact that I absolutely echo Dougal's uh, sentiments and I would say that the Catholic Church as a, a broad institution definitely needs uh, reform and restructuring. Um, this uh, this is a, an epidemic um, and it is most clearly a, a structural issue rather than just a few bad apples. But regarding to pertaining to the specificities of the, of the case, I uh, am I'm sceptical and I think Whilst the popular opinion may be that uh, George Pell got what was coming to him, I think we should, as a general principle, try and isolate the case in and of itself um, and try and isolate it from the background noise and uh, its place in a broad range of crimes or alleged abuses. Okay? Because I think in this instance, anyone who uh, looks at the case with some kind of scepticism, um, you can already see it, has been labelled as someone who's a kind of a pedophile sympathiser, someone who uh, is in bed, I guess, with the church and is uh, a child abuser apologist, and I don't think that's fair. So, the jury found that in the second half of December 1996, while he was the Archbishop Archbishop of Melbourne, Pell walked in on two 13-year-olds 
choir boys after a Sunday song from Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral and sexually assaulted them. The complainant, who is now aged 35, said he and the other choir boy had separated from the choir procession as it exited the church building. Um, now, the other victim uh, has died in for 2014 of a heroin overdose. Okay. Mm -hmm. Neither the victim told anyone about the offending at the time. This is according to an article. Um, Andrew Bolt has said that the other victim had told his mother that the alleged abuse never happened. Pell's defence team, so this is where Pell's defence uh, said that there were so many improbabilities in the prosecution's case that they should conclude that the abuse could not happen. Now, what's important to remember here in this case is that the uh, case where Pell was found guilty was not the first time he was tried for this case. He had previously been tried. This is double jeopardy. This is double jeopardy, okay? And so he had actually been previously tried... and was actually uh, found 10 to 2 in favour of an acquittal. Okay, and then they... Because, well, because it's a hung jury. So... Does that mean they weren't sure? They weren't sure. Um, Cardinal's first trial ended in a hung jury with 10, to, 10 of 12 jurors in favour of acquittal. So only two were saying that he was guilty. Okay. In the retrial, the defence again demonstrated that it was physically impossible for the alleged abuse of the two choir boys to have occurred. Now, this is a, an opinion piece. But basically, the defence hinted, said that for this assault to have occurred in the way that the, that the accuser has described, there would have been 10 improbabilities that must have occurred simultaneously in a very tight window. Okay, and these are the following. Well, I should, I'll just give, give some reactions to the case. Um, Ray Hadley said that Mr. Abbott and Mr. Howard made uh, gross errors of judgment in reference to Tony's and John Howard's character reference given to George Pell. Um, Bill Shorten, I feel for everyone who has been a victim of clerical assault and abuse. Sarah Hanson-Young, I've added my name to the petition on George Pell to have his Order of Australia award revoked. Okay. Now, so this is what the defence said. Um, for the Cardinal to be convicted, 10 improbable things must have happened. Archbishop Pell abandoned his decades-long practice of greeting congregants outside the cathedral after Mass. So this was alleged to have happened after Mass, okay, the assault. Pell, who was typically accompanied by a Master of Ceremonies or Sacristan when he was vested for Mass, entered the carefully controlled space of the vesting sacristy alone. Okay, doesn't normally happen. The Master of Ceremonies normally follows him around. Um, then, kind of, there are a bunch of others, but... At least 40 people did not notice that the two choir boys left the post-mass procession. Two choir boys entered the sacristy, started gulping altar wine, and were accosted and abused by Archbishop Pell while the sacristy door was open and the Archbishop was in full liturgical, liturgical vestments. So the abused choir boys then entered the choir room through two locked doors without anyone noticing and participated in the post-mass rehearsal. No one asked why they'd been missing for 10 minutes. So... One of the key pieces of evidence was the the boys, one of the, the surviving boys said that uh, George Pell parted his robes and presented himself to him um, with his member out. And the, uh, the, the defence said, well, that's not possible because the, literally the way the garb is, that couldn't have happened, as well as all the other things. Um, now, so other important factors in the case. There's no corroborating witness for the prosecution, no DNA evidence. It's been more than 20 years since the alleged assault took place. 
Um, and the Victorian police sent this, the brief, to the uh, DPP, um, the Victorian DPP, three times and got it sent back. The DPP said pretty much that there's not enough evidence to prosecute this case. Three times. And they said, it's up to you guys if you want to take this further, but we can't see a case here. Three times. He was essentially acquitted 10, 10 to 2 in a hung jury. And then in the retrial, it is 12 zip in favour of hanging this guy up, pretty much, sending him to prison. So that's the skeptics case. The skeptics case is in terms of actual, the actual practicalities and the logistics of performing the act in which he was accused, it could have almost never mm. happened and definitely not in the way that it was described mm. by the prosecutors. Um, mm. Dougal, is there room for healthy skepticism in this case? Sure, I think there's room for skepticism. I think it is getting appealed. Um, some things I will say just in regards to why a couple of those uh, skepticism points um, might, you know, uh, <clears throat> how do you say it? Well, what I would say is that um, if you ask why it would take uh, 20 to 25 years for someone to come out, um, George Pell has been on record in the past um, in defence of a priest who's being accused of child sexual assault, uh, instructing church lawyers uh, to deal so severely with the accuser as to set an example of the accuser, right? So when people are thinking about coming forward with sexual assault allegation, they do know that they, as a single person, coming up against uh, potentially the biggest organisation in the world uh, with basically unlimited funding, unlimited real estate, um, unlimited access to global leaders. Like this, this is the biggest David versus Goliath that there could ever be. Uh, so it, it's definitely plausible that people uh, might wait that long before they come forward. Also, in regards to that now, I don't personally understand it, but as it's been explained to me, if you do get abused, there often is a long time, not like if you're a child, you get abused, you go straight and report him. It's like you often deal with some of the trauma for quite some sure. years before sure. you're even willing to talk about it, let alone come mm. forward. Um, and Pell's character in you know, in, in terms of shifting priests around in the past, defending them, um, means that I wouldn't be surprised if he was guilty, but I'd also say there is room for scepticism. Um, but then again, the case should be judged on its own merits. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, if you did help the cover-up of priests in the past, uh, I don't have any legal knowledge, but I think that's something you should probably go to jail for. Um, not in, you know. Now yep. that should be its own trial. Sure. But um, an accessory to. But it's not this trial. Yeah. If you're going to say, is that an aggravating or a mitigating factor? That's definitely an aggravating factor in the circumstances. Mm. That's in sentencing, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, sure. But as an overall oh, principle, okay. like if you say, does that help his case or does that hurt his case? Mm. In general, in terms of the court of public opinion as well, yeah. does that hurt or help? You'd say, okay, well that hurts. Um, now this. Obviously, I, I don't believe in kind of um, retrospective justice where we see that he has helped mm. uh, engage in, in this kind of shift 
priest moving, priest shifting, whatever, and now let's kind of slap him with something. Because mm. I think that's a, a very slippery slope and a dangerous road to go on. And I think mm. we should treat uh, each case in its own. Now, what we should what we should also say is that because there was like a gag order on the court, how much of the proceedings do we actually know about? I don't because think- there would be like, when I think about it, it might well be that the jury knew something that we don't know as of this point. That's possible. That's possible. But we should also recognise that um, there was a, a, essentially this, the same case was made before and it was 10-2 in the other way. Sure. But what well. I'm saying is that if the case was made before 10-2 and now it's 12 zip the other way, it's very possible there'd be like a new piece of evidence or something. It is, But it's also possible that just as a result of prejudice or bias going into the case that the jury's already sort of yeah, made of up their mind. Um, but of course, there's like we'd need to know the full proceedings before we like come to an actual. Judgment. Okay, so I think as far as I can tell, uh, some room for skepticism. Uh, we know that this dude has done some bad things in the past, but that are probably unrelated to this case. Um, the case should probably be judged on its own merits, and there is room for both skepticism and. Uh, confirmation of regarding the the, the guilty verdict. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I would say. Um, I didn't. I didn't really explain the background of the case particularly well because obviously a lot of details are still coming out as well. Um, mm. Some of them are sensitive. Some of them are quite sensitive, but I think it's also um, important that it's alleged that the Victorian Police commenced an investigation one year before any complaints had been filed. During that investigation, the police took out newspaper ads seeking information about any untoward ba- behaviour with minors at the St Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne without any hint of such misbehaviour having been received by the authorities. Now, I don't want to delve into conspiracies, but this is, this is one that I have read, is that in George Pell's role as the treasurer of the Vatican, uh, you can imagine that there are also... He was clean, his, his role under Pope Francis was to clean up the dirty dealings of the church in the finances. Mm. Now... There has been speculation on the internet that he may have been stumbling onto some particularly dirty dealings and that um, this is potentially some kind of stitch up from the deep, deep from state. From the deep, deep state. This is, it's, an, it's a possibility if he's actually going in there trying to clean up. Bear in mind, he came back voluntarily from his role in the Vatican to defend these, the, against these charges. Um, and if you watch the interview with him with the police, he's very frank and very um, open and precise with his answers and his recollection about what happened. Um, and also, interestingly, uh, he, he, his lawyer told him not to take, not to um, present his own case and his recollection of what happened at the trial, which may have stood against him in the end. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, we'll wait and see what the uh, the, appeal. the appeal says. Um, but if it can go 10 to 2, then 12 zip, I wouldn't be surprised mm. if there's a strange result coming. And until then, he's sitting in jail. Yeah. And obviously, I, you know, I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, well, you know, they're innocent until proven guilty. And then when they're guilty, we say, oh, well, we don't like that. Um, as a broad spectrum, I think the justice system is pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, I think we should still press and ask questions. So I don't want anyone to say, okay, well, uh, Alex is uh, 
conservative enough to warrant the overthrowing of legal doctrine just to protect some guy in the Catholic Church. I don't. But it just seemed that these, the particulars surrounding this case were slightly odd. Okay. Alrighty. Um, next story is international story. You might have seen earlier this week, we did release another video, uh, which was essentially an emergency video. Uh, I called Alex up, asked what he was doing. He said he had a spare couple hours. I said, get over to Parramatta because we need to do an emergency Tommy Robinson video. Now, <clears throat> Defcon 6. Tommy Robinson, for those who don't know, is a very active political figure in the UK. Uh, his Facebook page is more uh, engaged with, more popular, is uh, by all metrics, has more going on than any other major political figure in the UK, including Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, and the likes. Tommy recently spent two and a half months in solitary confinement after he was uh, breaching, uh, he was breaching a court order which said he couldn't uh, report on this case of Muslim grooming gangs. Now, the reason why he couldn't report was because the courts felt like if he was reporting on it, that might influence the jury. The only caveat to that, I would say, was that Tommy was reporting on the grooming gangs for about two years before any uh, major news media reported on them. Uh, and several years before any of the grooming gangs were taken to trial. Yeah. Uh, so he felt he had to follow through to make sure that all of those, uh, that, that justice was in fact being served. And I'm sympathetic to Tommy yeah, uh, in that time. regard. So big now time. then he spends two and a half months in solitary confinement. He comes out uh, and the BBC, he realises the BBC are about to run a hit piece on him. Big now time, they're doing piece. it in... They're working with, on this uh, hit piece, uh, a documentary, an organisation called Panodrama, which is an investigative journalist, uh, international documentary-making company, and also with a George Soros-funded group called Hope Not Hate. Now, when they were doing the interviews and the investigative journalism for this Tommy Robinson hit piece, now we know it's Tommy Robinson hit piece right from the start because... The working title of the documentary is called Tommy Takedown. Um, so Hope Not Hate People, George Soros funded that. They were at all the interviews, all the investigative uh, journalism proceedings. Tommy catches wind of that. Uh, and one of his former aides, who he had a bad fallout with, was contacted by uh, the BBC, by a guy called John Sweeney works for the BBC, was working on this Tommy Takedown hit piece. Now, they said to her, uh, why don't you come out for lunch or a dinner? We're working on a, uh, on, on a documentary about Tommy Robinson. We'd love to, to hear from you. So she knows basically what's going on straight away. Yep. And despite the fact that she had quite a bad falling out with Tommy over some personal issue before, she immediately knew what was up, knew it was um, a mainstream media fake news deep state hit piece designed to take out any form of new media, any form of uh, critical thinking uh, against the narratives of the deep state. Now this, what Tommy focuses on in particular, which the mainstream doesn't like, is Islamic immigration and Islam. Uh, he says we need to have a real conversation about Islamic immigration. He says we need to have a real conversation about Sharia courts in England. He says we need to have a real conversation um, 
about the cultural effects that importing uh, many, many Muslim immigrants is going to do, is going to have in England. Um, so Deep State did not like that one bit. So they were working on the hit piece for him. Um, now, when Tommy found out from his aide that they were doing that, he gave her a camera and a recorder and said, go do the meeting. Uh, and what we find out from the meeting is not only that, that this BBC reporter, John Sweeney, spent several hundred dollars on alcohol to try and get her drunk so she would say something maybe she didn't mean to say. He was also, throughout the conversation, was uh, classist towards middle-class English people. He, uh, sorry, towards lower-class English people, saying that they don't like to associate with people like Tommy who have that particular F.U. accent. He was racist towards uh, Asian taxi drivers who don't like dogs, who don't like taking dogs, i.e. Muslim taxi drivers. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he crossed the line of a lot of the isms. Sexism, homo uh, homophobia, uh, racism, classism, blah, blah, blah. And this was all in one lunch and one dinner. So Tommy brings him in, right? Tommy brings him in. And this is where Tommy makes his own response documentary called Panodrama. It's a play on words of panorama, if you didn't know. Uh, and anyway... He shows him the clips of that, that his former aide took over the dinner and the lunch and said, can you explain this, how you're making the hit piece? Uh, how the particular one was that he was saying to Tommy's former aide, who was a woman, can you please give us, even if it's made up, some dirt on Tommy Robinson, hopefully in a sexual manner, like he sexually did something to you, and we can capitalise on like this Me Too movement. That was like a BBC mainstream report had been working at BBC for like 20 years. This isn't a totally taxpayer-funded. Totally taxpayer-funded. So he played it to him. Uh, now then, Tommy released the documentary on YouTube, um, Facebook, and you know he was obviously active on Instagram too. So then within like 24 hours, the big tech giants, Facebook and, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, both banned Tommy, banned him within 24 hours for alleged Islamophobia, Although the only main, although the only significant uh, event in the timeline of Tommy Robinson's political activism within kind of those weeks or months was this panodrama documentary. Um, Any, can you fix that? It was the pan panodrama documentary? Amazon consequently took down Tommy Robinson's book, stopped selling it. Uh, so YouTube is the last major social social media platform where Tommy can speak, where Tommy can talk. Uh, he also has his own website, but you need to go yourself to the website, sign up for the newsletter and stuff. You won't be able to find it organically on any of these big tech sites, except for YouTube, which is kind of the last stronghold. Now, the only thing I'll say before I go to Andy and Alex for reactions is that <coughs> you go to Facebook, you'll still find uh, the Facebook page of the Muslim Brotherhood. You, If you go to Amazon you'll still be able to buy Mein Kampf, uh, but you won't find Tommy Robinson because he is too, quote, dangerous. What do we think? Uh, well, firstly, um, shout out to YouTube for uh, keeping him up. Even though YouTube does have a semi-dodgy history with demonetization. Demonetization, putting stuff in the algorithm... Never letting pages. any Alex Jones stuff come up in people's feed. They do have some issues, but we are thankful that they've kept Tommy on. Now, the worst... Sorry, just one more thing. We give a big um, 
derelict award to Twitter because they banned Tommy a long time ago. So they're the worst out of the bunch. But continue, Andy. Um, but really, if I was um, someone who lived in England or the UK and I'd seen that my taxpayer dollars had been spent on trying to seduce or just trying to take advantage of this woman, I would be up in arms and I'd assume there'd be this activism going on um, going on in England. I'm all for that. I'm hoping that... Um, These English people are not happy. It's English people, and they shouldn't be happy. Um, it's, once again, another... It's like... And you wonder, in some cases, why people aren't... Um, like, don't buy into government structures or don't buy into, like... Fake news. Fake news. And it's examples like this, which really just are so horrific for like discourse or just like people getting engaged in the political system because they think it's a bunch of scumbags mm. because mm-hmm. of cases like this mm-hmm. um, Facebook's justification for taking Tommy down where they listed a few different things one was like calling for violence against Muslims now Tommy never did that and if he did do it because he does all his things on social media you would be able to find the tweets or the posts or the YouTube clips and they just don't exist <clears> right <throat> Facebook, the biggest tech giant, when they when they ban him, can't find a damn can't can't find the accusations against him. Yeah. All right. Tommy got zucked. Alex. Zucked. Uh, a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that if you're going to look at arguments for privatisation of public entities such as this, particularly broadcasting entities, um, the BBC, the BBC, um, I to a large degree the ABC, you can see why. You can see uh, this is a, a, an insight, as Dougal said last time uh, to earlier podcast. It's a trailer to the movie. Okay, you actually see the insights of how some of these big publicly funded agenda pushing institutions actually work. They work in close correlation with far often far left activist groups who are there at every stage of the investigation to make sure that the end result is some kind of. Uh, recommendation for more regulation, another government committee, another big bureaucracy and an enlargement of the state. That's invariably what happens. Big fat new tax. Big, a big fat new tax, some kind of redistributionist policy. Okay. Now we should also recognise uh, the hypocrisy because it is often these far left uh, media organisations who are the ones who hate uh, or, or, or who are apparently against racism and against classism and against uh, and for a big fair crack for all. And you see firsthand that the people who are pushing this agenda are actually the furthest thing from that. Mm. And in fact, it's often the people who are actually just trying to have an honest conversation who are the ones who get caught in the crossfire because these people are pushing this hyper PC culturally sensitive agenda, which actually constrains uh, real um, productive conversations. I would also say, yes, that whilst we do give a shout out to uh, YouTube, its parent, Google, whenever you search for Tommy Robinson Panadrama, um, the actual documentary Tommy put up, none of the articles that are pushed to the top of the Google feed mention anything to do with Tommy's documentary. None of them. Mm. Okay? And speaking to a more broad point, any article you read besides a very few select... Um, ones you have to look for. Ones you have to look for mention the Panadrama documentary at all. They mm. all say that he got banned in response to uh, hate speech, speaking out against Muslims, uh, racism, Islamophobiaism, okay? Now, we, could, we should also recognise the fact <laughs> that um, this is the exact reason why this social construct of hate speech has been created. 
As far as I can see, this is uh, the vehicle, the means by which the, the deep state puts the Trojan horse into society where they hate speech becomes the means by which they can silence any dissenters of, uh, of popular opinion, of what they're pushing. Um, and Tommy's exactly right. And this is the case for almost everyone who gets alleged hate speech. They say, well, point to the example where I've done it and we can maybe have a chat about it. Sure, so a popular reaction from average Joes out there in response to Tommy's banning has been, uh, has been, I think it's hashtag I am Tommy Robinson. Mm. Uh, it's like that, uh, oh, I can't. That's South Park. That's South Park. Where it's, I flooded the dam. I flooded the <laughs> dam. No, I flooded the dam. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. Um, because everyone knows that they do it to Tommy, they're going to do it to you. Um <clears throat> Now it's um, we're gonna we're gonna post a link to Panorama documentary uh, in the description below. We're yeah. gonna post a link to Tommy's new website so you can keep in touch with Tommy and what he's up to. Even if you don't agree with him, you just want to hear what someone who's been banned from all social media platforms. But that, sorry, just to to, just to jump in, that would be definitely the point I would want to make. Uh, uh, so, you know, the, you may not agree with what Tommy Robinson has to say. Mm. But that's not the point. Um, the point is that you could be next. And we had when we were talking about the beta mail of the week last week, when we gave Andrew Bolt and Roland Dean a massive spray, mm. we said that the reason why we have free speech, among a whole multitude of reasons, including the, the fallibility of, of an opinion or knowledge, is that it is the means by which the people who are most vulnerable can be most protected. Okay? And there is no greater mechanism or means by which one can achieve that than to be able to openly express your concerns and your prejudices in the court of public opinion. Because as you said last week, and you just hope that the demos can sort the BS from, from the gold. Um, I am of the opinion now that these big tech giants um, have been totally corrupted i was of the opinion before that there was some kind of element to which they were able to um allow for freedom of speech but i am of the opinion now that they have been totally corrupted yeah 100 well, percent. i think it's i think i tend to agree with you alex i think part of the reason is also the factor if you look at where the headquarters of all of these big tech companies have been for the last 20 or 30 years it's in silicon valley which is a part of them always in san francisco which is basically the most left-wing state. In it's basically so inner city Melbourne. It's naturally, going to be more left-wing. Okay, um, so there's a lot of left-wing people out there who I would regard as usually rational and usually, um, you know, sensible, but who have mistakenly bought into this ideology of uh, trying to eliminate hate speech, right? Because they just feel like it'll make. Uh, It'll make people nicer to each other. Oh, it's safer. Kind of, they often safer. say safer. Now, it's wrong, uh, but occasionally it can be well-intentioned, which means that I'm happy to I'm, I'm happy to not pronounce you as evil yet. I'm happy to not pronounce you as evil yet. I'm happy to pronounce you as wrong or misinformed. Uh, so I'm happy to sit down and have the conversation, happy to provide a little bit of leeway, but still call out each individual circumstance as it comes along. 
I think that's all we can do for the time being until we take up arms. Mm-hmm. It's more 1776. We're going to bring it back. It's more like the, just the people in power who have that viewpoint that are more radical about it. Like, I'd assume that it's a Danish assumption, but most people who have the, like, who don't want hate speech are just genuinely well intentioned. Like, you go up to the average, per- like, a person you see out, they don't want. Yeah, well, no, nobody wants hate speech. You just don't want. The thing you don't want more is a government to regulate speech, and then decide the selective thing of hate speech. But like, but like, you're saying no one wants hate speech. I mean, can you define what hate speech is? No, I can't define it in non-subjective terms. I can't define it. But there are definitely things where you look at them, you're like, okay, that that's just hate speech, right? Like, but I'm saying that's against subjective. No, but I'm saying there are definitely things that everyone would agree that there. Okay, but then I'm saying I don't think you, I don't think the there could be a single thing said which everyone would agree on. Not a single. There, there, there is still a large number of people who think that okay, the Eiffel Tower is made of chocolate. But, but yeah, but what I'm saying is people are going to believe the world's made of cheese. But to a sufficient extent, as much as something can be believed by everybody, there are some things. But that's the exact reason why hate speech cannot. But exist. that's what I'm saying. You're arguing against me, but I'm not on an opposite team to you. I'm saying there are things where you look at them, you're like, that's obviously hateful. But nonetheless, that should not be regulated. Okay, and hate and hate itself isn't isn't a justification for something to be regulated. But I'm saying there are things which are just obviously mean. And you're saying that oh, that's, well, some people don't think it's mean. Okay, there are some things that are just mean. Okay, but again, that's subjective. But it's not subjective because almost everyone agrees on it as much as everyone can agree on anything. Okay, maybe an idea for because a just because podcast. you need. You can't, you can't say that not everyone agrees on it just because, like, 0.01% of people don't agree on something. Like, well, if we're talking well do you tell me one thing that everybody agrees on? I'm tell me one thing in the world that everybody agrees on. But that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, but what you're saying is, well, you can't say something is hateful because not everybody agrees on it. It's like everybody agrees on it to the extent that something can be agreed upon. I'm not saying you should put it into law... But I'm saying there are some things which people say, all right, which are obviously hateful. That doesn't mean you should regulate it, but it doesn't mean they're not hateful, just because not everyone agrees on it. Okay, but if you, you, there are too many subjective factors in that. You're saying, okay, hateful means everyone agrees upon it. There's too many subjective variables operating in uh, amongst each other and with each other to the extent where well, like, you can't say, okay, well, everyone agrees that's hateful. I'm telling you, that's, a bit, that, that's not like... To the extent where most people would agree on, like that's that's not even that's not that's not this mathematics like level. Postmodern relativist thing you've said so far. But I'm just saying that's I'm, I'm saying that's not on the on the, the like the level of mathematics. Like nobody ever said it was. Yeah, but you're saying to the maximum extent people can agree on something that would yeah. be like mathematics or physics. Yeah. No, it's not. This is why our shows go for over an hour. I would say I think this is a discussion for a different podcast. What is hate speech? Can we define it? And we'll move on from there. Um, do we have a conclusion? I never said you case? can define hate speech. What I said You're was just there you, are things knows that are obviously is. hate speech. I'm saying there's also things that are going to be in the middle in a grey area. There are some things which some people are going to say are hate speech, but are probably not. And then there are also some things which are just very vile and mean, which most people would agree are hate speech. That's what I've said. Alrighty. Okay, now, I want to do a little segment. There are some states in America that have passed uh, laws recently about third trimester and even post-birth 
abortions. Let me repeat that, post-birth abortions. Now, I don't think you can call it an abortion if it's post-birth. That's the first thing. Uh, but secondly, I don't think anyone can abort anyone once they're born, regardless. I think the conversation... I mean, babies are viable, usually with a few months to go before they're born. At least, you know, the conversation should be not... Um, what to do after they're born. That's just not where the conversation should be at all. Um, now, the, I'm gonna focus specifically on Virginia um, because in the Alex Jones, Joe Rogan podcast, they brought this up and they brought up the video of the Virginia governor going on, uh, going on radio and doing an interview about it. Alex Jones' impression of him is not And right. they said, the radio host said to uh, the Virginia governor, said to him, some people are worried about you doing, uh, or, or, or medical people doing abortions after the baby's born. Is that, can that happen or not? The Virginia governor in his big southern accent goes, yeah, well, there has been some confusion about it and that confusion's really been blown out of proportion. And what we're actually saying is that if the baby's maybe not viable or maybe deformed, uh, if the baby's born and we can keep it alive, the governor and, I mean, the, the, the doctor and the parents will have a discussion about what to do next, okay? And the radio person didn't pick him up on it at all, just moved on. Uh, so what he said was, for everyone in layman terms, uh, there, is, there will be no law in Virginia stopping babies being killed, not aborted, killed, murdered, after they've been born. Uh, that's the reality we're dealing with. Um, if you talk to a lot of people uh, in America about abortion, most of them don't know that the Democratic Party platform uh, in, its, in what it wants to do, in its agenda, has, has been for a long time, several years, trying to legalise abortion up right until birth, like late trimester, like one hour before you should be allowed to abort. That, that's been their thing. And recently uh, we've heard from democratic governors that once the baby has been born, they say the government should not be involved in that process. It should be a process between the parents and the doctors. Makes you sick, I think. Makes me feel pretty ill hearing that, to be honest. The bloke needs a, I don't want to call for violence, but I'm pretty close. Well, it is violence against the damn baby because the baby's a human. Yeah, well... And it's been born. And there's no more... Um, oh, well, so what, so what... So they said, well, how can it happen? How can it happen? Well, the Bioethics Committee apparently has to come in and verify the baby's been born and that's when it's given its, like, legal rights, I think. Yeah, so until... There might be a couple hours oh, in between. Yeah, if it's bureaucracy. Might be a couple hours in between. Might be a couple of days. Um, and so then they come and say, oh, well, the parents and the doctor can sit down and have a chat about it, right? This is... Obviously, we can have, it, we can have a separate discussion about whether or not abortion's okay, full stop, okay? Um, but this is a particularly painful subject to speak upon, particularly since it's being often spoken about in such lax terms these days. Um... The total subversion of a baby's right to life, once it is viable, we, you can have a discussion about what if it's okay to abort a baby before 
it's viable. I'm, you know, that's obviously for a separate but podcast. Baby's viable several months before it's born. Sure, sure. Um, this it, this is why um, you have to really entrench the idea of there are very limited aspects where the state should intervene. Very, very limited in my estimation. But one of them is the right to life and the right to safety. The point at which the baby's viable, that is a life and in my estimation. And um, not only that, it should be protected under law. Um, and to kind of circumvent that and say, well, it's kind of up to the parents. Um, it obviously says what kind of sick people are what kind of sick people are running this show. Um, it's not surprising that it's come from the Democrats because the thing is that the people who are worse off um, in these situations of abortion are often the minorities. Like you find that black babies uh, are, are aborted at an astounding rate. I think it's something like 2,000 every day or something like that. It's like unbelievable numbers. Um, and it's often that the, poor, the, the poorest uh, communities are the ones who get the most. Um, but I don't think anyone would, would, with their conscience, would honestly be able to say, okay, you know, even if you absolutely say, yeah, it's the mother's right to choose up to the point where she delivers, you cannot look at something post, post birth and then have a discussion. That's end of, that's full stop. Um, that's, it's beyond evil. Um, that's eugenics. Mm. That's to the point of eugenics. Um, yeah, I can't even fathom it. It's pretty, yeah, pretty rank. So I don't mind. I, uh, sorry, I don't know how we're going to uh, fix it. Uh, Donald, oh, Donald Trump sent out a tweet that the Democratic position on abortion is now so extreme that they don't mind executing babies after birth. Now, <clears throat> that's absolutely true. And Donald Trump has been a warrior on this front of protecting life. But then you get uh, like all these Democrat progressive media publications like Snopes, PolitiFact, The Hill, who all come out and start trying to fact check Trump on it as if that's not true. Uh, by the way, these fact checkers, by the way, just as a general rule, almost the way to the truth is the opposite of what the fact checkers say. There's a scene in Harry Potter where uh, I think the, the guys who hit the bludger at Harry uh, said they're going to hit it at Harry, and Harry said, "I'd be much, I'd be much more scared if I was the guy on the broom next to me than me." Uh, that's kind of how it is with the truth. That if any of these politifact people try and fact check something, the truth is often the opposite. But I, I told you this. Um, you remember with the hammers thing with Hillary Clinton, and they said, "Yeah, the hammers, the hammers, the hammers." Um, oh, okay, the hammers. Um, so. The way to support this is Donald Trump. I was just saying that because I think I was the one who brought up the hammers. Yeah, but, I was um, referencing what you were saying. Um, yes. I think it is beyond evil. It's very hard. Well, it's very hard to fix because <clears throat> these votes happen inside, you know, the it's state, state caucus. It's a state, it's a state caucus. caucus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gets barely any airtime. I'd say the way, one of the best ways would be for all uh, moral people all people in favour of preserving life, not killing, especially post-delivery babies, uh, should e exercise the foot vote, should get up and move to Texas, 
get up and move to Oklahoma. That would be one one way. And also vote for Donald Trump again. I tell you what, he is a glimmering beacon in a quagmire of death and deception, isn't he? Well, that's what they say. They say when the night is darkest, the stars shine brightest. Mm. I've heard when the lights are on, the stars shine the brightest. That's an NBA commentator quote. I might even the say that... Dark. You know what? I might even it's go as far dark. as to say Donald Trump is Batman. Well, if there was ever a real-life equivalent to Batman in terms of fighting injustice on the streets... Now, here's one more thing I you will say. The dawn. If anybody remembers that blackface scandal from like two weeks ago, I can't verify this. Yeah. Alex Jones is positing that... I saw it. Uh, ...that the Democrats had this blackface photo for 20-something years... And they essentially use it as a blackmail term, kind of stick to the agenda or else we're going to crush you. Yeah. So he comes out and says, we're actually, this bill, I don't support it. We're about to start killing babies after they're born. As soon as he starts to say it, the Democrats come piling in, release a blackface photo, end his career. He's done. Instantly. How ruthless. Uh, So that's essentially how the factionalism works. That's how the DNC works. This guy's probably never going to be able to get a job again. Um, God, it's the whole thing's depressing, though, isn't it? Don't it you think? Depressing. It's like if any time someone does something slightly good, they get crushed. Now, you know, I don't want to bring it all the way back to Pell, but if it turns out Pell is uh, uh, is innocent of this, and Pell was actually the one who, of course, he acknowledges his, his errors, and you know, he says he's trying to move forward, and he's actually trying to help survivors and whatnot, and we should be doing it from a jail cell. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. But he. He's the one uncovering a whole bunch of dirty deals. Sure. Now, why wouldn't why wouldn't Pell come out and say that though? Why wouldn't Pell come out and say he's discovering dirty deals? Surely he has the platform to do it. Yeah, maybe he's afraid that he'll spook them. Well, that he's onto him, but he's well, that's a weak character from Pell then. Sure. Oh, oh, he's demonstrated weak character. I'm not here to do a character reference. Yeah, sure. I'm just saying it's an extra weak move. Next yep. week move. Okay, so I think we have... We've got anything else to say? I don't think so. I'm... Yeah. I I'd be marching on Virginia. I think we've, co- I think we've covered it. Uh, so what do we got left? Beta mails of the week. Beta mail of the week. Now, we gave Rowan Dean beta mail of the week last week. As far as I remember. We, we got a nomination. nomination. Now, <laughs> I had the pleasure of seeing Rowan and defending the beta mail of the week several nights ago. Uh, let me say, he took it like a champion... He said uh, we were very articulate. He even said we were probably right on the Beta Male of the Week nomination. Uh, And said we had big careers ahead of us in media. (laughs) Big careers ahead in media. Thanks, Rowan. Thank you. Now, he didn't listen to anyone else's bit except mine, so you might want to take that one back, Andy. But he said at least I have a big career in media. And uh, But before he left... Who is this guy? Before he left, he said uh, he, he wants to submit his own... Fan nomination for Beta Male of the Week. For those of you familiar with Sky News, you might remember a uh, triple threat of Ross Cameron, Ron Dean, and Michael Atham, which was consequently reduced to a dynamic duo of Ron Dean and Ross Cameron, which is now just Ron Dean. Subsequently reduced to a dynamic Uno. To a dynamic Uno. (laughs) Uh, Got one card left. Deep State about to win. And. uh, 
He had a nomination, and I don't. Should I just play this into the mic? Play it into the mic. I'll play it into the mic. We'll put the video up on if you're watching it on Facebook or YouTube. I guess that's a bit redundant saying that now because they'll be waiting for the video to come up. But I'll play it into the mic anyway. Dougal, I think it's very important that you understand that I am nominating for a Beta Male Award a gentleman who turns a blind eye to what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are against free speech. The Chinese are against freedom of expression. But this one gentleman constantly tells us who great the China, how great the Chinese are. I'm nominating for a Beta Male Award Ross Cameron, formerly of Outsiders. Stuck in the boot at the end of that one, formerly of Outsiders. We can forgive Ron for his mispronunciation of beta male as beta male, uh, but what do you think of the nomination? It does seem somewhat contradictory that the man who dies on the, on the mountain of free speech is the one defending probably the biggest restrictors of free speech in the world, or at least one of them, China. Now, I'm quite China-friendly. I lived there for two years. I can speak the language. Wow. Uh, on you, mate. So when it comes back to me, I might provide a more academic insight into the situation. But let's get the, uh, the average Joe input from Alex and Andy <laughs> to start us off. You've got some serious nerve. Um, what I will say is... Uh, Thanks, Rowan. First for your nomination. Yeah, we love nominations. We love public nominations as well. Put your name, put your name to it. I think that's always important. Um, I don't think Ross has ever been publicly on record defending the actual specificities of China's regulations in terms of free speech. I think uh, Ross, on record, has been the one saying that for all the bad rap China gets, here are some good points. Okay, but uh, the bias. The, the, you know, the, largely the definition of bias is what you omit, and I would say that in that respect, I think Ross definitely deserves a little bit of a touch-up. Um, mm -hmm. I'm happy for that nomination to go up as part of the formal board of nominations. Mm -hmm. um, we would, I'd like to hear his if he's got something to say and defend himself. If we can, or if he has another nomination, or if he has a nomination, he <laughs> may nominate Rowan <laughs> for not sticking it. up for him more when he was getting the the flick. This may have been a power move by the deep state through Rowan Dean. We don't know, but we're going to find out. You have a celebrity pass on of nominations. Every time you get nominated, you nominate the next one. Mm -hmm. A little bit of duck, duck, goose action. A little bit of ducky, hot duck. Potato. Hot potato. You hot potato, hot tomato. Um, look, look, I don't know enough about, um, about China and their doings to make an actual positive contribution, but I would say that... Um, I'm fairly certain China has done well in lifting poverty rates, um, uh, bolstering the economy, um, mm -hmm. and just being all around progressing pretty pretty damn hard. Yeah. Okay. Are they progressing too hard? Here comes to here comes the expert to weigh in. They've got the expert on the panel. Invited them for the segment. Here he is. So for those of you. Well, firstly, what I'd say about Ross, our friend Ross, is that what Rowan is talking about, in my estimation, is that most people are sceptical of China's rise and think they might go and take over the world. And while we should, in some ways, take advantage of their rise economically, we should be weary of them politically. 
what Ross's argument has been is that while we're standing over here being skeptics all the time, China is riding a massive economic wave and we are refusing to surf it. And if we surfed it, we would be a much better, off, a much better place as a country. Uh, and we shouldn't worry about the Chinese that much as everyone is saying. That's as far as I can tell uh, Ross's position, although he would definitely say himself he has reservations about the Chinese government. Now, from living in China for two years, I'll give a brief description of the, the Great Chinese Firewall, uh, which is not a physical wall, it's a wall on the internet. So if you go to China, you will need a VPN to uh, access Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, among others. Uh, basically, China has its own versions of all of those apps uh, and restricts the content available on those apps. So the Chinese government will tell the media, what are you saying? Maximum recording time. Andy, low, <laughs> low IQ play from Andy. <laughs> low IQ play from Andy. Chris Webber, national championship game, calling the timeout. JR Smith, run the ball out, play Eddie, from Andy. Eddie uh, so what happens is the Chinese government gives a range, uh, delineates a range of topics as sensitive, which the media either cannot cover or, if they do cover, can only give the direct Chinese state-sponsored angle. So those subjects include uh, Tibet, those subjects include political re-education camps in Xinjiang, mm. those subjects include Taiwanese uh, independence, independence in Hong Kong, uh, they include South China Sea, uh, they include the Tiananmen Square Massacre, among others. So if you talk to a Chinese person, <clears throat> they'll never have heard of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, they'll never have heard of any of the... Uh, They'll understand that there's some political action in Xinjiang with the Yaga people. Uh, they won't know the extent of it. They won't know that there's some bad things going on. Uh, so we don't know a lot of those. We don't know a lot of those things. So there is definitely free speech suppression in China, and it can be a bit of a, you know, you might wonder why Roscoe, who says free speech is so important, would be so sympathetic to China. Now that being said. I would caveat that by saying there are so many things the United States government lies to us about. Sure. Uh, the whole, they totally lied. So this is for anybody who just throws out conspiracy theories totally and just says they're, they're lunatics, would never have happened, uh, blah, blah, blah. This is coming down the barrel at you where I would encourage you to embrace a healthy sense of scepticism. And one thing uh, to look up just to dip your toes in this world of alternative narratives where there might be uh, some anti-government narratives going on, is to look up the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, for history students, you'll remember that there was allegedly a US ship on the Gulf of Tonkin who got attacked by North Vietnamese ships, which provided justification for the US to go in and fight in the Vietnam War on the side of the South. Now, we find later on that that attack on the US ship was totally fabricated. 
not even partially fabricated, totally fabricated as a pretext to go and fight communism. Now, there are some people who may have guessed that, but that was totally uh, faked to the public, totally faked, uh, and it was released in declassified documents years later. So what we find is that because the US has laws mandating the release of classified documents, depending on their classification level, kind of think like 30 to 60 years after after they were written and, and used. So we're finding out now and over the past few years about all of the things that happened in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And we know that there was a whole lot of interesting geopolitical occurrences happening then. And we're finding out that there is a lot of lying from the US government. Uh, we understand that as well, another one. You can go to, it's called Operation, uh, oh, I really should know this, um, Operation, I can't remember the, the name of the operation. The operation essentially was, uh, you, was FBI and CIA chiefs who needed a reason, a pretext to invade Cuba. So they proposed to JFK that they perform domestic terror attacks on the American people, false flag operations, to say that Cuba did it so then they get to invade Cuba. Operation Northwoods? Operation Northwoods, okay. Uh, so that's been declassified. That's not controversial, it's not debated, it's not disputed that the CIA and FBI proposed to JFK doing school shootings, movie theater shootings, taking down, shooting down US planes with civilians in them, to use it as a pretext for going into war with Cuba to fight communism. Okay. Um, so to those of you who just trust the government at face value all the time, uh, we should understand that sometimes there are deeper things going on. I think it was Reagan who encouraged us to be, when he was leaving office, most sceptical about the military-industrial complex, mm. which was growing in power he said it was dangerous in when was he around the 70s yep. uh, now we know that particularly after 9-11 the military industrial complex exploded in terms of the amount of resources it had assigned to it and the amount of power it has and so when we are here sitting down analyzing all the corruption in the fbi in relation to trump while some people may be surprised the fbi could do something like that it's not really surprising to us and it really depends how much history you've read as to how sceptical you would be of the morality of governments. So that's my overall... So that's what I'm saying is China's, China's government can be bad, is bad. Uh, but all governments are bad. Most governments are pretty dodgy. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I think that's a good analysis. So that's first... Ross, that's Ross Cameron. First nomination, Ross Cameron... Operation uh, Northwoods. Cool. Alex, do you want to go through? Do you want to go through your nomination? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, a, a quick nomination to Alex Hurd and Jim Waterson. So Guardian reporters reporting on the Tommy Robinson. Deep platforming. Uh, Alex Hurd and Jim Waterson. Immediately. So this is what you'll, you'll often see uh, with these reporters, particularly those who are progressive, is that the first thing that they'll do in any article is you've got to give some kind of description of the person you're talking about. And the first thing they'll do is uh, far right or white nationalist or white supremacist or Racist, alleged... What they'll say is um, critics have called this person 
a racist, a white supremacist. And basically what they're saying they'll is... They'll throw it in. They'll throw it in. Uh, they won't validate it. They won't put a, a footnote in the end saying who said that. It might be Joe Bloggs on Twitter who said that. Um, this is what you'll see on Sunrise. When Sunrise, uh, when Milo Yiannopoulos went on Sunrise, they did a massive... They often do stitch-up pieces for the first 30 seconds when they're introducing the guests. Critics say he's far-right, white supremacist, all this crap. Um, most often than not, you should be sceptical of it's that. a whole lot of crap. A whole lot of junk. Do your own research because almost always they're inflating it and you know what the thing is on those tv breakfast programs the hosts always get crisped yeah they always get crisped crisp. i mean i've seen jordan peterson get described as far right white nationalist yeah and it's like the dude is the furthest thing from it now I, i've got a couple of bones to pick with jordan peterson but i can guarantee you he's not a white nationalist and not only that if you set the debate up in those terms you're going to get your ass handed to you so i don't mm-hmm. know why these people do it they're punks they're amateurs and they get taken to school every time so uh, who who are you nominating? I'm gonna no, I'm gonna nominate Alex Hearn and Jim Waterson for the following reason. In their write-up of the article of Tommy Robinson, where they described the reasons why he was deplatformed, they mentioned these things. They said that following that warning, Robinson did break Facebook's policies again. It says through. Okay, so they're affirming in that context. There, they are affirming Facebook's decision to take him down. They said he did break these policies. Uh, organising and participating in events with recognised hate figures or groups such as Proud Boys and Gab McInnes, public rate, praise or support. Gavin yeah, Gab McInnes is hilarious. He's a comedian. He's a comedian. And he himself said he's not far right. Anyways, such as Proud Boys and Gab McInnes. Uh, public remarks that include hate speech targeted at a specific group in society. Public calls for violence against people based on race, ethnicity and national origin. Now, Tommy Robinson, as Dougal mentioned, said, well, if this was the case, can you give me one shred of evidence? Can you give me one piece of documented evidence? Quote. A quote, a tweet, something where I spoke out and said any of these things. And this is why, you know, if you're talking about, I don't actually think hate speech exists as a concept. I don't. I don't think it does. Um, but this is yet another example where the abstraction of hate speech is used as a means by which people can be deplatformed to speak out against the, the deep state, the big institutions, the big tech companies, and the big influencing... Uh, agenda being pushed down to enhance the power of the state and to reduce the power of the individual. This is yet another example. Tommy Robinson, thank God, he's ahead of the game in the same way that the Trumpster is almost always ahead of the game. He's almost always the smartest guy in the room, but he lets you think he's not. He's too quick. He's too quick. Stick he's too sleek. Stick and move. Uh, so my, my nomination, because these guys failed to mention the Panadrama documentary in their write-up of why Tommy got deplatformed. released within 24 hours, of bef- 24 hours like before his banning and was premiered outside the BBC offices with tens and tens of thousands of people in attendance. It is absolutely no coincidence that 24 hours after uh, Tommy Robinson uh, delivers an absolute knockout punch, the BBC's claim that they are impartial, not biased and not uh, politically active that he gets deplatformed. Also, do you remember that guy's name who went and tweeted out that he went and had a sit-down meeting uh, with Muhammad Facebook Shafiq. people? Mohammed Shafiq. Shafiq. Works for the BBC. Went and had a sit-down meeting just after Tommy released the damn video. Sat down with Facebook. Lo and behold, Facebook bans him. Yeah, so Mohammed Shafiq... And who also owns Instagram, so Facebook banned him off both. Yeah, so, so uh, Mohammed Shafiq, who will throw up and will throw up the tweet... He uh, get a bad email. Uh, said, I'm happy, I'm happy to announce that I, was, I met with Facebook officials and uh, was part of the reason why he got deplatformed. Now, Mohammed Shavik is a TV presenter, an Islamic activist, and a regular BBC contributor. So of all the people Facebook could have asked to come in and weigh in about, what do you think we should do about Tommy Robinson? 
um, they bring in Muhammad Shafiq. And you say, well, yeah, I don't know if that actually cuts the mustard in terms of what counts as impartial uh, advice to a, a, a tech giant. I don't think that cuts the mustard. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. obviously good enough for them. Mm-hmm. Now, the only other thing I'll say is that we think the serial offenders of fake news are often part of the what Andrew Breitbart would call Democrat media complex. I would say right-wing organisations are not exempt from it. I would say you, you, you will be able to go on Fox News and find uh, far, you know, descriptors far left, uh, things like that. Same type of tricks can be used on the right in the establishment fake news media. So I'd say the right can be doing this as well. Uh, in case those were wondering why we had such partisan analysis, we would say that the left-wing media are usually the worst offenders, particularly those with Trump derangement syndrome, populist derangement syndrome, and we'd say Tommy Robinson falls in and as a subcategory underneath the Trump derangement syndrome. But also it's just because most of the, the mainstream media is left-leaning anyways. Sure. Um, it's, just, it's like if you're going to bell curve it, you're going to have the most extremes where the... The, the population population density is greatest, which is towards the left on the mainstream media. Sure. Okay. So, who's getting it? Who? So, are they all our nominations for the week? Were there any more? I think I think that's just. Oh, the one. Oh, yeah, John Sweeney. Sweeney. John Sweeney's Sweeney. Get a massive Sweeney's sm- the dude who's the subject of Tommy Robinson's documentary. The dude who oh. is paying BBC, is paying British taxpayer money to pay for alcohol for Tommy's former aide uh, to get her drunk, so she would try and say something bad about Tommy. Uh, who still has a job, by the way, at the BBC. Now, Tommy, they've tried to take Tommy's job away from him. They've, you know, aside from taking away most of his social media, they've also suspended his PayPal, which made it much harder for him to do anything. Um, but John Sweeney still got a job working at the BBC, uh, despite the fact that they used terrible journalistic practices. They were soliciting fake allegations... And he was racist, sexist, and homophobic on camera in one lunch and one dinner. He still got a job. So he gets a beta male nomination of the week. I'm going to throw in also CJ Wellman from the Sydney Morning Herald um, opinion piece. Facebook gets it's a late a, submission. It's a late submission, but it, it's a good one. Facebook gets it right with the ban on hate propagandist Tommy Robinson. So that's Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, CJ Wellman, I reckon there's a good chance he wears a fedora. Uh, okay, well. I think, I think we can. I think it can be a combo. I think it can be a combo award for all the uh, Tommy Robinson news journalists. So we've got Sweeney, Willeman, and who are the other who are the other baiters? Hearn and Waterson. Hearn and Waterson. Hearn and Waterson. And then Roscoe. So Roscoe, well, we felt like we gave Roscoe a decent touch up. Just for I wouldn't uh, say you gave him a touch up. Well, we need. Well, we we would say we require clarification on the position. Yeah. From Roscoe. Right, we'll await comment. Uh, we'll take. He'll take it on notice, as they often say in the Senate estimates. So sure, Guthrie gets up oh, there. Oh, also, did anyone? This is the last oh, minute good. edition before we finish jumping to conclusions. Did I was? I'm going to give a shout out to Lionhelm. Did anyone see when the wage gap people came in and were complaining about the wage gap in the Senate? And Lionhelm just asked them a couple of basic questions, which left them totally floundering. So the wage gap women, the wage gap women from the uh, probably the bureaucracy for wage gap people, where they're all on there's several one, hundred grand a year. There's just there's literally um, gender equality in the workplace. I think there's yeah. one about twenty minutes. Yeah. So they come in. Working. They come into the Senate. They say men and women have 
15 like 15 cent wage gap and we have to do something about it so Lionhelm goes so how did you get the statistics was it based on like <clears throat> annual earnings or was it based on hourly rates because I have a concern uh, we know for a fact that men uh, while still working full-time jobs you know the same jobs that women do men spend much uh, t- tend to spend significantly longer hours actually at work working than women do. Yeah. So women might pack up and go home at 5pm, but the dude might stay and work till 7.30. Right? And so then they say, well, no, sorry, we don't have the data on hours worked or we just have the annual income. So he said, so it's possible that women and men hold the same full-time jobs, but men are getting paid more because they actually work longer hours. Now, this was the killer what the what what the wage gap women came back and said well well what we think is that just because you're at the desk for 12 hours doesn't mean you're working any harder than someone who's at the desk for eight hours (laughs) that's what they said back to lionhelm and lionhelm just he remained calm he didn't deliver any zingers but he was just on this rational (laughs) line of questioning that i would i'd advise you um to go on YouTube and search about what about the wage hours gap. I think that's what the video is called. Yeah, the, the, Lionholm is known for that, and particularly uh, Senate Estimates. This is right. where he's the king of it. Um, I mean, there's we, we can go into this, but I think this is pretty pretty, pretty fairly well documented. Uh, this is the rise of the deep state, by the way. The, the fact that this thing is still going, it's still on its legs. The wage, is because, gap. The wage gap is because of the deep state. It has been disproven and dismantled that many times. By every single serious economist. By every single economist who has touched the subject. It has been dismantled. It's the same with the minimum wage. And the easiest argument against it is if women are getting paid 15 cents less, every business would exclusively hire women. Yeah. Do you know how much money you can save on labour costs, particularly in Australia, with 15% less on salaries? It's yeah. insane. Oh, look, it's mad. It's, but, um, yeah, Lionhelm's a crack-up because he, he's the king of senior investments. And uh, every time the ABC... There was a time when uh, I think ABC spent 30 grand on a font... For their uh, signature mask head, the ABC, right? And uh, James Patterson was there as well. I think it was last year. And they go, um, so can you explain what, uh, why there was 30 grand spent on um, a font, <laughs> a simple font? And they go, well, look, it was all part of the uh, branding strategy. Uh, you know, we were rebranding the ABC and it was going to be our mask head print and Patterson and I were going, oh, okay. so, so it was a branding exercise it was a $30,000 branding exercise <laughs> and it, no 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 it wasn't a branding exercise it wasn't a branding exercise it was um, we, look, and she gets a bit shocked and he goes okay so, so what was wrong with um, and, he, and he went through what was wrong with uh, Helvetica I often use Helvetica <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a good one and the uh, Times New Rome you heard of Times New Rome and obviously this is the problem when you just give the ABC a whole bunch of money and like you don't have any control over what actually happens to it, yeah. is that it just kind of gets thrown around like it's a big stripper party and they're just yeah. like, you get 30, you get 30 grand. Can you imagine going to your boss and saying at a company and saying, yeah, I need 30 grand for a new font. They'd kick you out. They'd kick you out. They'd say you're obviously they'd not taking you, your medication. They'd give you, they'd give you just... <laughs> There's the door. And that's all it would be. It's, It'd be. it's been real. It would be. It's been um, real. Hope you've paid your kids school fees for this year because yeah. it's not coming out of your salary anymore. Ridiculous. And, like, you know, when was the last time you heard any of these public organisations go, you know what? We've actually got enough money. We just need to spend it better. 
Never. You never hear that. You never hear that. They're all overpaid. And I've, you know, I'll say it, I think the ABC should be privatised, but it's not surprising. Senate estimates. David Lionhelm. He's the king of it. He's we'll throw a link in the description. We'll throw a link to it, mate. He's been around for a while, and it's just some of the the stuff these people think they can get away with. They walk into Parliament, and it's just. Dave, not quick enough. But, but you know the thing is, stick and move, Dave. They, stick and move. I, I bet you these people are on like 150 grand, 200 grand a year. Mm. How many meetings do you reckon there were discussing the font <laughs> with like the whole ABC people in there? There's probably like five people met, five person meetings. All right, we got Times New Roman, we got Helvetica, but we do have 30 grand in the bank. What can we spend it on now? <laughs> Shout out to them. They didn't spend it on gender quotas and um, Gillette ads because they could have done that. They I spent think that, was, that, that, that budget had already been allocated. That budget had already been allocated. But they did much less damage with the font than they could have. So they get... Um, yeah, but it's just, again, it's a case where, um, you know, Milton Friedman always says, no one spends someone else's money as carefully as they spend their own. And this is just like... It's just a party it's at the ABC. Democracy in manifest. Dem- you, I see you know your judo well. <laughs> okay, now let's Chinese bring it back. Yeah. We'll bring it back. We'll bring it, bring it, bring it back. Jump to conclusions. What's the conclusion we jump to? Reminds of it. Jumping conclusion was I think that everyone should go to church once a year. Yeah. Everyone should go to church once a year. No, now, that's in light of the Pell story yeah. we just covered. Yes. Yes, obviously not so, Pell's church. So we shouldn't go to Pell's church. Well, maybe we should go. You should. Should we? I would say Protestant. Go to go to an Anglican church. A church of England. Church. Go to church of England. So, an Anglican church once a year. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Shout out to Church of Kings. Go to Church of Kings. Oh. Not going to say anything. Not going to say anything. Anglicism. Oh, well, let me just say, um, at Andy's debate last night, Reverend Edwards was there. Subscribe to the podcast. Promise to listen to it in the car with. He did. Um, he mentioned it to me today. He did said he, he listened. Yes, yes. He said he listened to the Charles Joyner one. Okay, so to get back to my point, everyone should go to the church. This is um, this is a micro factor in what I regard as a macro story. Um, What's the micro factor? Micro factor is going to church, being church attendees. Okay. And the macro factor is the death of the West, uh, which can be attributed in part to the decline in Christianity. So I would say that at this point in time, the West needs Jesus, big time. Um, what we have, the thing is, what we had prior to this uh, new age cultural revolution where we thought we were the masters of our own universe was an appreciation for the fact that there is something greater than us. And so that was by virtue of our religious adherence. There's something bigger than us um, we are in in essence subservient to that, and we look we are individually responsible for our own actions. Okay, and because we just smash Christianity to the extent where um, people think that they are every uh, morality is relative, and there's no kind of broad uh, strictures of morality where people say, okay, well this is kind of yeah, go. I wouldn't say it's a fair characterization of the status quo, but you can continue. You don't think there's been a pretty serious attack on Christianity? Sure, I think there has been, but I think Christianity's launched some pretty serious attacks as well. Sure, sure. Um, but I would say that we have not replaced it with anything that's good. There has not been 
a replacement of Christianity with anything that's been good or productive. I don't think that's true. Okay. Because I don't think your definition of what has been lost is actually all-encompassing of what's been lost. I think we've lost a lot of the bad stuff as well from Christianity. For example, um, if you look at <clears throat> why Galileo and Charles Darwin had a hard time selling uh, their science, a lot of it was because of the Catholic Church. Mm. Um, same as Copernicus. Um, and what we have left behind as well as what you would say are some good aspects of like spirituality and morality is uh, the church dogma which says the world was made 6,000 years ago uh, the world's the centre of the universe uh, and in a broader point it has allowed science to come in uh, and so we have been given uh, a better and more real conception of truth in terms of the scientific method than just what's written down in the Bible. And that, was that your... Alex's time frame wasn't like... It was... I would, 50 death years. of the West, I was, was probably talking about Nietzsche and Nietzsche was writing uh, probably after the Catholic Church's decline as opposed to what being... Yeah, but even, even if you take that, even if you take Nietzsche's, you, you were talking about examples that occurred several hundred years ago. Nietzsche's only relatively recent. Sure, but Nietzsche proclaimed the death of... Christianity. So that means the death of Christianity happened before nature, which would have started with the scientists and the Enlightenment. Sure, but then you're citing examples of Galileo and all that, and, and people, well, not even Galileo, Copernicus, people well before nature. That's not sure. even the same ballpark. Sure. Okay, what I'm saying is... Exactly, that's my point. Okay, but you, I'm talking about something fairly recent. No, but nature declared the death of the West... Presumably, it was alive before nature and started dying over several hundred years. Okay, I don't know what you're actually getting at. Well, I think the listeners will. Okay. Okay, well, all I'm saying is that we haven't actually replaced it with anything good, uh, particularly. And Nietzsche was exactly right when he said that the, the problem with um, when you destroy Christianity and you don't replace it with anything is that you tend to fall into this fatalistic nihilism, which inevitably gives rise to communism. Um, that's what he said. And I think he's absolutely right. You can see, yet again, communism and socialism is on the rise. It is manifestly bad, patently dangerous. Um, and I think when you... As a general rule, it seems like even though we would like to be rational and reasonable, um, we are not at the capability where the whole species can do it well, to that extent. I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I, you just totally didn't talk about all the new conceptions of truth we have where we actually test things out to see if they're real instead of just accepting them if they're written in the Bible. What do you say to that? Well, you have to remember that uh, many of the scientific advancements were made by churchmen. Prior yeah, and then they got crisped by the church for making them. That's because they're in, direct, they're in direct opposition to... What do you mean Bible? new versions of truth? The scientific method... The church, in many respects, prior to... Uh, was in favour of the new scientific method. Okay, the church, so, in, in fact, in many okay, in so, many examples, helped push it along. Okay, so why did Darwin come up against such opposition from the Catholic Church? If you take about specific... If you talk specific examples, well, sure. Probably, like, one of the okay. biggest examples in science in history. Sure, okay, you, you say Darwin, but that doesn't mean, ipso facto, that the church wasn't overall pushing scientific rationalism as well. Okay, the church had, like... How about um, Martin Luther? When he like the restrictions on free speech, 
as well as okay, but, signs, yeah, were one, incredible. And sure. the fact that you're saying we haven't replaced it with anything, I understand that. I think there's a gap that we have to fill in that. But we've also stripped away some of the bad parts from the Catholic sure. Church, which you haven't acknowledged. You've just said you've just said the Church overwhelmingly was a good force, but we know that there are elements of good and elements of bad. And while you say we haven't replaced it with anything good. I also want you to acknowledge that there were bad parts that got Sure, I'm happy to acknowledge that there are bad parts. And I also, you keep bringing up Catholicism as if I'm somehow some bastion of reason and rationale for Catholicism. I've said go to an Anglican church. And when you talk about Martin Luther and how he led the Protestant Reformation, I'm all in favour of that. He stripped away many of the bad Catholic practices. Okay? I agree with you on that. I don't know why you're bringing up the Catholicism bit again and using it as some way in which oh, it holds back the argument. I'm well, just saying we haven't replaced evidently it. Evidently it was Catholicism the Catholic Church, who you're saying would have invented the scientific method. I didn't say the they inv- I didn't church. say the I didn't say they invented it. You're saying it. when they encouraged it, it would have obviously been the Catholics, because the Protestant Church is quite new. What? What do you mean what? It's a simple thing. The scientific method has been around for a while. The Socratic method it started with Socrates. That's okay, a, it's Socratic the basis. Method. It's the basis for the scientific method. Okay, but what I'm saying, I'm not saying the scientific method specifically. I'm saying the idea that you prove truth through a scientific method instead of proving it through revelation is a significant step forward, which we which we got post church. Sure, but that doesn't that doesn't ipso facto mean that we can uh, stop saying ipso facto. I, I can say what I want. Okay. We're but, dribbling. We are crawling to the Okay, well, all I'm saying is, is that I think Christianity, uh, the West needs Christianity, or at least something that is good and not replace it with the, me at the centre of the universe, which is inevitably what gives rise to communism. No, I think, I think we can find something better. Okay, well, what have we got? Because well, the, the, Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian value set, I think, is something we can all aspire to be holding a lot closer than what sure, we do. Sure, I don't think... I don't think you need a, a god to work out what's what's good and what's bad. I'm not saying I look. I'm not a Christian. I'm not saying that it's perfect. Okay. I'm just saying that I think uh, obviously Christianity has something that's pretty palatable and overall in terms of morality, I think it's reasonably good. Um, and I think we're losing that. And I would say go to church at least listen to it. But why do you need why do you need like a divine? something to make something good or make something bad like it doesn't why, even does, why does morality need to be tied up in divinity it does i'm not saying it has to be i'm not saying it has to be i'm saying you can go to church and not even believe in god but believe all the other stuff like you can believe all the stuff what the other Old stuff is there at church besides god uh you get all the rules of morality uh, sure, old testament the only reason why that would be true in a church is because they're from god it doesn't mean they're not applicable to like aspects. Sure, but that's what I'm saying is we can still have those without Sure, I'm saying you can still have them without doesn't mean you can't go to church and not get them. Okay, so then how so then you're saying that we need to have the church we need to have Christianity in our lives but not accept Christianity. Like you're holding two polar positions. I'm just saying go to church. But you're saying you don't have to accept the church or like you don't have to really believe in what the church is saying. In terms of morality or in terms of God? Well, either or, because you can't distinguish the two between church morality and God, because the only reason why they have morality is because they say it descends from God. Sure, but you, you, just because, yeah, you can you not take the God bit and you can still believe in morality. Sure, then why can't we do that without going to church? Because I think a, a church is a good place where you get all, all the morality stuff in one. It's a nice little parcel. Okay. I'm not saying God exists. I never said you said I'm, that. 
I'm just saying that church might be good for some people. Go check it out. Okay. But this idea that we have we have to answer Nietzsche's thing with coming God with, with God back into our life is not necessarily. I'm not convinced it's a good thing, and I'm not convinced that going to church once a year would do would bring Christianity back into our lives anyway. I'm not saying we have to bring Christianity back in our lives. You said that. You said the West needs Christianity. Yeah, it needs Christianity, but it needs the principles of Christianity, the morality of Christianity. Okay. I think we've pretty much wrapped that up. I think I'm ready to kick it. I'd be surprised if there were that many stragglers of, of audience that have made Dude's it. Dude's a big-time keen on argument today. Big-time keen. Look, good discourse has happened. I'm sure some topics that we'll venture into further on in future podcasts but um do you have anything to say signing off big shout out to kingdom huge shout out to kingdom kingdom pony follow him on facebook and insta we'll throw him a link we'll throw him some serious linkage and i think uh the carnage house boys has been the round number four we'll see you next week boom